Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. So when we're preaching and we, we think of our audience, um, there are going to be, you know, probably various people in the, the various different kinds of people at various kinds of uh, places in their in their walk with the Lord and their spiritual life. Um, and one of them may be, you know, I, I can think of possibly three. One of them might be um, this person who it doesn't matter what I do. I'm saved. There's that particular person. There's then there's another particular. Then there's another person who hears this kind of stuff and just immediately worries, uh, and they just get nervous and they look at their life and they and they know their hearts and they understand their their struggles and 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 they just walk out of church, kind of just oh, petrified, and and then um, you know there there are the people who hear it um and they hear it you know as it's intended to be heard i guess but perhaps you could say something about how to deal with each of those particular groups because i guess the i guess we have to assume as preachers um that as we talk there are going to be these different groups in the audience yeah yeah well of course the group that understands it well uh, that's uh, there. We have a blessing of their mm. their good place. Um, I, we're reminded that one of the tasks of the preacher is to be faithfully be doing biblical exposition, so they're hearing the whole counsel of God and not mm. just mm. a particular theme. We we recognize people uh, are are uh, grow at different levels and. Yes, uh, you know, on both sides, the, the you know they may they may hear a text a particular Sunday and misappropriate it for themselves. That first group may hear a text on faith alone and think I'm fine no matter what. Mm. And 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 that same text may comfort very much those who are uh, doubting. And then vice versa, if you come to a text that emphasizes the necessity of good works, that that. Uh, uh, hopefully that first group is challenged, uh, but the second group may worry unduly. Mm. I mean, I, uh, you know, I do say sometimes when I preached, I've said sometimes, you know, sometimes my experience is people, some people who maybe don't need to hear <laughs> to the same extent the necessity of good works are the ones that get very worried about it. Yeah. And then, you know, that's the place where pastoral counseling, I mean, I've talked to some people and they're very worried and tremulous. And uh, I'll say to them, you know, you know, Robert Murray McShane's famous saying, one look at yourself for every 10 look at Christ. Mm. And, and some of these people have said, you know, for you, I think it's like 2,000. <laughs> mm-hmm. 2,000 looks at Christ, one look at yourself because you're so spring-loaded to condemn yourself that now now the other category those people who 
think they're fine no matter what. I actually, I find that group, I mean, it's the Holy Spirit finally. Mm. They're harder to penetrate because mm. they tend to respond to my preaching by saying, mm, maybe that's not the gospel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that group, if they're if they're staunch, I think that's that we just pray the Holy Spirit would pierce their shell because you know, really the 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 the, the group that's trembling and nervous, they, they seem to be open to pastoral counsel on the side. But the other group, I, I haven't faced this much in my pastoral ministry, but I have sometimes and talked to people of this the the group that says nothing, it doesn't matter what we do. They in my experience, they're not very open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I and I just recognize I can't, I can't persuade them on on my own. I, I I've talked to them, and I do say to people, I've said to people in that group, "Do you know you hold the can't lose exegesis?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, any text that talks about the necessity of good works, I feel like they just explain away. Yeah, yeah. So I try. I try my hardest, but I don't think I've had great success. And of course, I guess we'd all agree, right? Only the Holy Spirit can open people's hearts. Yeah, our, our, our job is to faithfully preach the the whole yeah. counsel of God, every text, and we pray the Lord to open their hearts. Yeah. Where there's there's uh, where does the role of of grace come in here? Because um, I think, and, and you know, I know you agree, for example, Titus says that grace is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness, etc. There's a clear, it, it, it's very clear that the law, for example, will not produce the kind of life that we're talking about here. Um, it's grace that will produce it. It's the gospel that will produce it. Um you know, and we probably don't need to go over again the fact that you know to some people this appears quite contradictory. But could you could you perhaps give us in your own understanding where you see the role of grace fitting into this, and how significant is it to be preaching grace? Yeah, maybe maybe I could uh, answer that question by thinking of a particular text, Romans six, mm. right, where Paul Paul thinks. Uh, answers the question whether his his gospel encourages more sin, and and of course Paul's answer is you 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 you've died to sin, and uh, you you you've uh, in baptism, which I understand it to be a conversion, you you've died with Christ and you've risen with Him, and the. The slavery, dominion, and tyranny of sin has been broken. And then in the second part of the chapter, grace has set you free. Mm. So I've often said to my students, you know, grace is not only unmerited favor. It is that. It's not just a present you open, but it's also a power. Mm. So, and I think Paul clearly says this in Romans 6, grace frees you, you know, you 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 were uh, you were you were slaves of sin, but you become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over, which I think is an image of being handed over to a new master. So, I think one of the dangers as a 
Some people understand grace merely to be a gift, which, and I don't want to, I don't deny that it is a gift. Sure. But it also, it's also a power. So, what does that mean? Clearly, the works we do are a result of God's work in our life. Or another way of putting it in terms of New Testament theology, it's the work of the Spirit. Right. There's a power behind it. Yeah. I think of it like this, that there are two ways to embrace grace or think of grace or trust in grace, whatever you like to call it. One is just merely intellectually. It's this kind of, it's this doctrine, it's this this gift, it's undeserved and so forth. Um, but that, but it's it's really all in the head, and it's that when it's like that, then it um, it it kind of has the potential to. Well, it doesn't matter what I do. But for those who embrace grace at a deeper level, it becomes a power because it's gone from the head. It's actually become part of us. It's, you know, it's not just, we've used the word mental ascent. It's something that we've embraced. It's almost like it's this, you know, we've fallen in love with someone and we've seen this character about them and we just love it. Um, that's what I'm trying to get to. With and, and it's become powerful within us and therefore transformative. I mean, it's it's almost like it's not like we have to think about. Oh, now I need to do something. It's just it transforms us again. Not perfection, but um, can you you know have I described that in a way that you think is um, helpful? Yeah. Well, and I, Alan, I think that's another way of saying what Paul does say in Romans six: You've died to sin. Hmm. Uh, this the this slavery this the, the slavery has been broken in your life, or as Paul says in Ephesians, you you uh, you you're you're raised with Christ now. Mm-hmm. He, he's given you new life, uh, so that you you you've been changed. So yes, our salvation is forensic. We're justified, but it's but it's also there's also a. We're 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 new now. We're a new creation. We're not. There's an already not yet there. Clearly, mm-hmm. but we, we're 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 a new creation in Christ now. And uh, yeah, it isn't. It isn't just in our heads. That's not. That's not a biblical anthropology at all. That's uh, one of the most fascinating connections to me in the New Testament is in Paul's prayer in Ephesians. At the end of Ephesians 3, he talks about grasping the surpassing, the, the, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you might be filled to the fullness of God. To me, that kind of summarizes, if you could, if, you know, if you could say, well, what is it that, that God wants us to be? What is it that we want? That's what we want. We, know, but we want to be filled with the fullness of God. But look how it comes. It comes with it grasping and experiencing Christ's love. There's this, if you just think about it in your head, that is kind. That can become a little bit contradictory. Well, so there's Christ's unconditional love, and yet that leads to this transformation. But that's the pattern. That's the pattern of the of the gospel, isn't it? That this grace, this love, 
is something that, re- that that when it takes hold of us, it does transform us, albeit imperfect transformations. Yeah, yeah. And we recognize that, as you mentioned earlier, in human relationships. If you're in love with someone, if you love someone, you, uh, you want to make them happy. You're, you're, you're changed in your affections and actions towards them. And it's something internal. Uh, you, 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 you want to do good to them because you love them. And it's, it's not just, I, I have to. In fact, we all recognize, right, if it's merely a duty from the outside, it'll dry up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. can't sustain that. It, yeah. it, it's too, it's, that, that's where it is a burden. Yeah. It, it, is, it isn't light in that case. It's, it's uh, heavy and grievous, and, and, and we'll stop. We, we, we just can't do that. So I have this saying with regard to Preach It, which is um, uh, the podcast that you're on and preacher training that I do, um, that um, for preaching to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. And you mentioned Murray McShane before about, you know, for every one look at ourselves, we need 10 looks at Christ. And so what I'm hearing through here in terms of grace and, and so forth is that, we we must be continually pointing people to Christ in the midst of, you know, uh, talking about uh, this thing, you know, for lack of a better word, called works. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and I think that is very clear in uh, uh, all of Paul's epistles, which, you know, I've, and, and, and really all the epistles, and then uh, the Gospels as well. It's pervasive in New Testament uh, theology because uh, such a life is a, is a life, as you pointed out, a life of love. Mm. It's, a, it's a life where we're in relationship. Uh, and, and you think of 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Mm. So the, it's another way of speaking of God's grace, right, that we're – our lives have been transformed by knowing Jesus so that Paul in Philippians 3 can leave behind his Jewish advantages because now he's come to know Christ. And that's, that's what drives him, his, his, the, the, the knowledge he has of Christ. Mm-hmm. I have some um, listener questions here on this, on this topic. And the first one is, and, and there's actually two of them, they're kind of, they're kind of very much the same, so I'll read them both out. Uh, how do we protect ourselves from falling into works-based, and, and by the way, if, you know, we may have already, you know, answered these, if there's right. anything to add, do so, if, if not, we, you know, we simply may make reference to it and move on. How do we protect ourselves from falling into works-based preaching? But also, how do we protect ourselves from preaching the passive Christian life? And here's a second question that's very similar. From my experience, preachers either tend to overemphasize works or underemphasize works because of the perceived danger of making people think salvation is works based. How do we get the balance right? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I do think we've talked about that. I would say, to say an, another angle on it is I, th- I think one way to be balanced in your preaching is to preach through 
whole books of the Bible. Yeah. Give attention to what each text is saying. So if you're preach what's there. If you're preaching in Galatians, you're gonna hit both themes. Mm. And, And and I think if obviously you have to put things together theologically to some extent, but you have to be fair to each text. And I think if you are fair to each text, I, th- I think you'll come up with a good balance. Mm. That, <clears throat> that really is, I mean, that really is in some ways the answer to that question, isn't it? Is it preach what's in front of you, preach what's there. And if you, you know, if you're preaching f- through a book, then um, you're going to, you know, cover the spectrum. Uh, this here's a second question: Which is a greater danger in today's church, legalism or antinomianism? And you might just want to explain what antinomianism is, is for listeners. Yes. Uh, well, le- let's just say legalism is the attempt to uh, be right before God based on how good you are. That's mm. a popular definition. I think that's accurate. Antinomianism means. Anti-law, antinomianism is another way of saying it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm, I'm against the law, so to speak. Uh, I would actually say I don't think one is greater than the other. Mm. I think they're both equally dangerous. And I think we're, we're all prone to both. Maybe, maybe at one time in our life, we're more prone to one, maybe another time the other. Yeah. But we, 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 it's, it's both. It's a both and. It's not an either or. I, so I, th- I think um, that's why we have both messages in Scripture. We're, we're, we're prone to fall to under the right side or to the left. And we, so that's, again, another call to preach the whole counsel of God. It's keeping right in the middle. That is the, that is the um, biblical way to go. I've heard it said that people should walk away from every sermon feeling like they've heard good news or it isn't a gospel-based sermon. Do you agree with this? Yeah, I do agree with that. Yeah. Because I don't, I think even a sermon that's very convicting, that exposes our sin, and some sermons do that more than others, should always give us hope. It mm. shouldn't just leave us just in utter despair. I mean, I, 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 we, may be, we may be convicted of our sin. I think Psalm 51 gives us hope. It's it's a it's a tough psalm, but um, yeah, a sermon on pride say shouldn't just leave us with well, there's no hope. Mm. So yes, good good news should always be present in every sermon. And I think of the next verse, you know, mentioned it before Paul's prayer, where it says, "Be filled to you know the the result of being filled with the fullness of God." The next verse is. Um, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And I take it that in the context there, what Paul is saying is um, that's hope that uh, being filled with the fullness of God is possible in an hour but not yet since is possible in us because of the power of God is at work within us. And we talked about grace as a power before. These are things that are hope for us. The spirit who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Because this question, the, the person who's asked this question then goes on to say, is there a space for walking away convicted, even lamenting about sin and failure to work out our faith with fear and trembling? Or would this lead to shame and legalism? 
And my answer would be, yes, there's absolutely a place to leave lamenting and convicted of sin. Mm. But but that's where the good news comes in. There's always got to be hope at the bottom of that. Yeah. It isn't just, well, that's the end of the story. Right. It's There's always a hope of uh, forgiveness, change. Yeah. Progress. So I, I think I think Psalm 51 is quite a lament, but it's but it's hopeful at the same time. Yes, because I, I think what people sometimes do when they hear this kind of topic, they they reach the end of the sermon and they are in a state of despair, as in, well, I'm at this point and you know I'm just I'm but but the future is always from here on out. There is always something that can be done. There is always there, you know, there is always um, a move to God that can be made, kind of thing. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus restores Peter in mm. John twenty-one. He doesn't leave him where he was, but it was, it was a very tough lesson for Peter. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, um, thank the Lord that we have Peter as an example because he is someone who, you know, we would say stumbled majorly. Um. Why? Here's another question. Why didn't he preach? Why didn't Jesus preach the good news of the kingdom to the rich young ruler? He seemed to preach works, and perhaps you want to just you know give us a brief background to the rich young ruler. Um, but why didn't Jesus preach the good news to the rich young ruler? He seemed yeah, to preach works. The, the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And um, Jesus, I mean, there's much more to the story, but Jesus ultimately tells him he has to sell everything and and to and to follow him. So I would say I don't interpret that story as a call fundamentally to works, mm. although yeah. there are works, yeah. but it's a call to follow Jesus. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting. Jesus says, the one thing you lack, but I don't think this is, well, only for the rich young ruler. What it means, I think Jesus says to him, what it means to my to be my disciple is to follow me. Mm-hmm. And that means, the way I interpret this, and Alan, you've probably looked at this passage more than I have, but I think that means these other the, the riches in his life, they were an idol. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, Jesus, he he puts his finger on the idols in our lives and says, what it means to be my disciple is I'm Lord. Yeah. And for the rich young ruler, that meant you, you need to give these things up and follow me because this is what you really worship. And so I don't, that's, that's, that's what it means to repent. Yeah. Yeah. He, he calls Matthew to leave everything and follow him. So, but but that was grace. I mean, Matthew was a sinner, right? Mm-hmm. This this guy thought he was this guy thought he was a good person, but there was a deep idolatry in his heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. other words, I I agree completely. In other words, Jesus did preach the good news to this man. Yes. Yeah. Um. And and that's the the essence. Daryl Bach wrote a great article in. Um, a journal, the Journal of Spiritual Formation of Soul Care. I don't know if you've come across it. I think it's um, out of Biola uh, from memory. Anyway, he wrote this great article um, 
around 2007 called What It Means to Embrace Jesus in the First Century Context. And basically, he, you know, he used the word repent. Um, but he really, what, it, what, he, what he said was for Jew or Gentile, it was to turn from idolatry. Mm. And I found that really very helpful because essentially that's what Jesus does. That's what Paul did. Paul said, you know, the Thessalonians turned from idols to the living and true God. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the rich young ruler. He is inviting him to turn from his idolatry. You know, we become like what we worship. We become like what we trust in. He's he's inviting him to turn from his trust in wealth to his trust and put his trust in Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. The kingdom of God was seen as such good news to people in the New Testament. Um, why isn't the church known for, well, this is, this is in this person's interpretation. It'll be interesting to see what you say. Why isn't the church known for preaching good news today? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, first of all, yeah, it, uh, the, it depends on what the questioner has in mind. I would say I think many sectors of the church are known for preaching the good news. Mm-hmm. If the, the, it, it is the good news of the kingdom. You know, it, it's very interesting, you know, over there in Australia. I don't know where he is right now. Alan Thompson's book, The Acts of the Risen Jesus. I'm sure mm, you've read yeah, that. Yeah, he's, he's in Sydney, yeah. Yeah, well, I think he... Maybe I'm getting off of the question, but I think he rightly shows the book of Acts, you know, the beginning and the end is about the kingdom of God, Hmm. but the kingdom of God is also preaching the good news about who Jesus is. Hmm. So, yeah, whether the church is known for it or not, I guess I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't know enough about the whole world to know, but I think what is that good news? The good news Hmm. is the good news about Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I trust that's being preached many places. I suppose some places it isn't. But that good news that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that he saves sinners, mm. he liberates us from our sin. Mm. I, 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 I know that's being preached in our church. I'm not the one preaching right now, so I'm not bragging. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, in my experience, it's being preached many places. I'm sure we, we could always improve. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps I, you know, I mean, I don't know um, the background to the question myself. I don't remember who the questioner is, but perhaps one answer, if that is in fact happening or not happening, is that the good news is seen to be just for unbelievers, and there's a um, a miss understanding there's perhaps a perhaps you know um we don't quite understand that the good news is not just designed to convert people but to transform them and so the good news is just as applicable to believers as it is to unbelievers yeah yes Uh, i i I absolutely go luther said we need to relearn the gospel every day Mm -hmm. and 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 i think that's true Mm. Here's another question. Our generation, or at least, it, uh, um, yeah, th- this is a good question. Um, and and I hope try to. I hope you hear the heart of it. Our generation, or at least it seems to me, 
a retired generation. This person, by the way, I know this person, they're in their 30s. There's a lot of shoulds, should read more, should pray more, should be filled with more joy. We're a different world to the young, restless, reformed world of the 2000s or the Billy Graham world of the 90s. We are more jaded and tired and ironic and cynical. So this is speaking about a specific generation, obviously, you know, the younger, the 2030s, I guess. The times I do hear about faith and works, it's a flattened theology, a simplistic tulip, to use the, you know, the, the, the five points of Calvinism. It's a simplistic tulip theology, and I dare say it, not terribly attractive. How would you, what would you say to that? Now, of course, this is, you know, this is coming from down under, um, you know, so we're miles away from America and, and, and perhaps things are different there. Uh, but, but do you have any comment on that? Yeah, that, I think that's an excellent uh, question. I think I would say, therefore, the preaching of the good news of Jesus to this generation, but I think every generation, it has to be earthed and a profound unfolding of what the biblical texts say. Now, that sounds simple mm. or, sim- or even simplistic, mm. but I don't think that is simplistic because I think if the text is unfolded profoundly, mm. you avoid just the shoulds. It's only the shoulds, and you avoid formulaic answers like tulip which just are fine in their place right yeah yeah but they're but they're not sufficient to live on and and another thing i'd say is i think i'd say to the younger generation but to the older generation too this has to be lived out in a community Mm. where we're committed to one another in our local churches which I honestly I've experienced. Our church has a wonderful community where we not everybody knows each other because we're about four hundred, right? Mm. But the relationships, the relationships. There's a profundity to the relationships. At least I'm, I'm probably not everyone in the church would say that, but I think many would. Mm. And I so so I think. Well, you know, maybe I'm wandering away from the question, but I think one reason this is difficult for people in our culture is I think many people, they're very individualistic and privatistic in their experience of the Christian faith. There's not profound exposition going on in their churches. Mm. But also, what we're talking about here isn't something that becomes ours just apart from other people. Apart from living in community with others, apart from being committed Mm. to one another and really caring for one another, because if you're in those kind of relationships, relationships bring depth to life. Yeah. Right? But if we're isolated from one another, I know COVID made some of that necessary, Mm. but it's a very artificial way to live and we can't keep living that way yeah sure so, so we won't 
we won't experience the the the, the depth if if we're not in relationship with one another. I don't think that's just another should because I think a call to be in relationship with the people that's what we want. You know, mm-hmm. we want we want to be in community with others. So I don't. I think that's an invitation instead of a obligation. I mean, it is an obligation, but it's fundamentally an invitation. I like what you said about the necessity of unfolding the biblical text. Now, you know that one of the one of the things that we can. I've just taught a class for the last two days on interpreting the Bible, and one of the things that uh, kept on coming out and I kept on hammering home and and was how easy it is to read into the text something that is perhaps from our theology. And I think we can quickly do that, for example, you know, we might come to a passage like James 2 on, you know, if anyone says he has works uh, but has no, if anyone says he has faith but have no works, then his uh, faith is dead and it cannot save him, etc. And we quickly resort to our theology of faith and works and go from there rather than actually unfolding the passage and all the depth that it has to offer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So there can be a kind of being, whatever text you're looking at, it can be simplistic, which is one reason, I mean, this isn't easy, right? Mm. First of all, not every pastor is gifted to do this. We mm. know that. Mm. Our hope is that we can have pastors who are trained sufficiently to do this well, and they need time. Yeah. You need time. You need the pastor to spend time meditating on a text and studying a text. So, and and in some, you know, some congregations, some places in the world are, they're very poor. Mm. So the pastor has to be bivocational, or in some contexts, the pastor has to work full time. Mm, yeah. So that's very that's a very challenging reality, and we do the best we can. The United States we're pretty blessed, you know. Most most many many churches can afford to pay the pastor full time. Mm. Well, but then, but then, but then we need to. We've even said to our pastor, you know. Uh, we it's good to visit people, but we have more than one pastor. But we really, we, we really want you to have that freedom to know that we want you to study because mm. that takes time. Mm. So we don't want you to feel like you, you can't visit everybody. Yeah, and we've got, and we've got like ten elders or so, so and other staff members, so. This leads this this actually leads well onto the next question. Um, have you met any theologians or pastors who have understood and nailed this topic? Well, what, I didn't hear the last part. Have understood and what? Have you met any theologians or pastors who have understood and nailed this topic? In other words, they've got it. They they articulate it really well. They preach it really well. Write about it really well. Whatever. I they, mean, they understand and articulate the relationship. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, John Piper was my pastor for eleven years. I think his preaching is profound and and helpful mm-hmm. uh, on this matter. Um, I, I think um, 
I really like Burkauer's book on faith and assurance. Have you read that, Alan? Long time ago. I thought that was very hel- a very helpful and balanced book uh, on the matter. Um, yeah, the, those are the two that come to mind. I, I actually think that the, there are many, I mean, I don't hear a lot of pastors, right? But mm. there are many pastors I know in the state that I, states that I think are faithful expositors. And, uh, one, of the, one of the best articles I ever read, and I, th- and, and I think it's been in a number of places, and the place that I remember it from, I think, is the Wesleyan Journal, but by Don Carson. And it was on assurance. And you remember the article? Yes, Reflections on Assurance. Yeah, that to me did a really good job of working through this whole subject. From what I it's been a, it's been a long time, but I just no, remember. No, thinking, I, it's yeah. an excellent article. And actually it's in, so Bruce Ware and I edited a book called Still Sovereign, and mm. that essay's in there. Yeah, that's the other place it's in, yeah. Oh, so maybe you can get it on the internet, but if you can't, it's in our book. So yeah. yeah. Um, now you may wish to. Con- There's just a couple more questions here. You may wish to comment on this. Uh, every time this person says, "Every time I've heard a sermon and walked away pondering faith and works and preaching, it's always where a preacher used faith to justify what he or she feels Christian work should be." Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I think, I, I guess I'd say again, I want, if I'm preaching, and this is what I'd say to my congregation, and I said this to them a number of times over the years, do not believe what I'm saying unless you see it in the text. Mm. And it sounds to me as if the question is saying, the preacher is asking me to do something that I don't, that is a, a personal preference of the preacher. Now that could be, or it's always possible that we are defending ourselves against the clear mm. word, but I would just say, is it in the text? Mm. You know, is it, if the, if, if the preacher is truly expounding the text, Whatever works you're being called upon to do, yeah, it it should be earth in the text before you. Stick now again, but again, it, it not in a superficial way, mm-hmm. right? I, I I so often point out to my classes, you know, the Corinthians were divided over Paul and Apollos and Cephas and maybe Christ, however you interpret that. Mm. But Paul doesn't just say, stop it. Mm. (laughs) He gives them a whole theology of the cross, right? Yeah. And wisdom. And and he takes four chapters, and I say that's a model for us when it comes to issues. There's a profundity and depth. And so I say one thing we should be doing when we're reading these epistles is to see how Paul tackles problems, food offered to idols, you know? Yeah. He, he comes at them with, the, with his gospel, mm. and, he, and he handles them with a, with a depth. He doesn't just say, because, you know, he could have just said, stop it. Mm-hmm. Stop doing that. 
don't don't uh, don't compare me and Apollos. You know, yeah, yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. But that's not what he does. Yeah, we can learn a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Final question. Um, what would you? And, and this really probably is a good way to end. What would your advice be for pastors in the trenches to help them get a handle on this topic? Well, I think some of the things we've said, I think it's helpful to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, read Allen's dissertation. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, read our book on assurance uh, that Canada and I wrote. If you don't have time, read our little book, Run to Win the Prize. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, read Burkauer's book. I don't expect you to read all of them. You know, so let's say you don't have time to read any of that. Well, then, then I'd say again, do the scriptures reflect what we talked about today? Yeah. You know, you, you don't have time to read anything else. Do, uh, or do, do the scriptures say that works are, are a necessary element of what it means to be a believer in the rich mm. sense we've talked about, mm. I think, in this podcast today? And then, then always place it in the context in which it's found in 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 the biblical storyline, yeah. In the and the in the books you're you're preaching. So, I mean, that's that's the fundamental issue. Finally, is that is it, are, are these things really so? Yeah, As, yeah. And 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 so I'd always drive us back to that. One thing I remember you telling me years ago, I've never forgotten it, that to look at this um, particular topic in a way in which dismisses the necessity of works is to simply have a one-dimensional view. Mm. And I think that's what I've what I've really heard from you today is, and, and sometimes this is better felt than, than telt kind of thing, but, but from what I've really heard is we need a three-dimensional understanding of this. We can't simply look at this superficially on the surface. Salvation works, you know, the two don't go together kind of thing. We need to to go deeper than that and understand that there is this organic connection between the two that is completely faithful to the text, that is completely, um, you know, there's grace and there's faith undergirded in there. And when we really understand what those, you know, things like faith and grace, we actually, the, the, the connection makes absolute sense. In fact, it must be there. It, it has to be there. Yeah, yes. I think that's beautifully stated. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a richness and uh Thickness, as people say today, there's a thickness to it mm, mm. Uh, that we need to capture. Mm. Well, Tom, thanks so much for coming on today. I have uh, th- this is this has been excellent. It's been fantastic, um, and I really appreciate it. Great to see you again, uh, and um, just yeah, all the best for your ministry. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Alan. It's been my delight to be with you. It's been a very enriching conversation for me. Thanks for listening to The Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preach It and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz. 
check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on the Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.